Welcome to Savage Beast. Uh, I'm Joe Gallagher. Uh, with me, as always, uh, a man who loves musicals. Uh, it's his favorite genre of music. Hi, I'm Paul McCloud. <laughs> I'm so excited to be it's, here. <laughs> it's Paul McCloud. Hi, I'm Taylor Sean. I am not Paul McCloud. <laughs> That's you ruined the second part of the bit, which was the only thing Paul loves more than musicals is uh, the Marvel cinematic universe. God, he hates them both so much. <laughs> I'm delighted to be on, here to discuss them both. I have it on good authority that he hates the musicals more than Marvel. I think you'll get him to watch several Marvel movies before you could get him to watch a, a musical. I agree with that thesis statement. Yes, I completely agree. Yes. Uh, Taylor. Yes. Uh, the uh, Speaking of Marvel movies, they keep going. It's, it's fine. I, I'm taking this opportunity to speak about them on the podcast. <laughs> um, there's two coming i guess i don't know i guess there's probably like 12 of them coming out but two of them have released trailers recently yes uh the, the 10 rings what's yeah. the full name shang chi and the 10 rings is something I, i'm sure that's not how you pronounce it I, but it's too late it's already done so yes um which uh i enjoyed the trailer of i thought the story seems pretty cool which it it's it, it seems to be that his his father like shang chi's father has the the rings but it instead of passing them to his son he uh he just kind of hangs on to them evil yeah yeah kind of like turns evil or like probably is doing the like the thing where he's like oh no the world is better if i rule it right i uh, i gotta you tell know. you i gotta tell you something so i was um I'm trying to remember if this was when I saw Black Widow or maybe it's when I saw Jungle Cruise. I, I don't, but I, I remember, so the trailer came up for this movie, but the problem is it came up right after the trailer for Snake Eyes. And obviously these are two different franchises, two different toy lines, but like seeing them back to back, it was really hard to be like, wait, so no, this is the Ninja Marvel. No, no, this is the Ninja G.I. Joe one, not to be confused with the Ninja Marvel. <laughs> like I just, I knew one had Aquafina and one didn't. But it was just like, wait, I, wait, what happened? Like, no, that already... And, um, I mean, look, I already have tickets. I'm already in. Um, but we are now fully in the part of the Marvel Universe where I have no idea who these people are. Like, just none. And that is both super exciting to have, like, no buy-in and other than just, like, you know, I'm a Marvel fanboy, so I'm just going to go see it. But it's also, like, I'm not going to say the bottom of the barrel because that's not fair, right? Like, it's it's entirely possible the better No, no. You know, the better stories are out there. They just haven't been turned to whatever. But it's just sort of like, yeah, Shang-Chi and the... Yeah, I don't know. And then the Eternals. Like, I, lo I love that the trailer for the Eternals... I just watched the final trailer today. And it's like, yeah, so here's why they didn't interfere in all the other shit. Because that would render it all... Like, Hawkeye is even more pointless now. Because Angelina Jolie's got the God Spear. Like... They're so ridiculously overpowered to be like, no, no, there's rules. That's why we couldn't um, save half the universe because there's rules now. So, well, yeah, I mean, to you know, Shang Shang Chi is, uh, you know, that it looked like a cool story, and it's like, okay, you know, they're really good at what they do with these Marvel movies now, yeah, and it had these elements of of you know. Uh, the traditional, um, you know, uh, uh, martial arts movie where there seem to be, you know, these like 
you know, these long histories, like families fighting each other, you know, like that yeah. sort of, I, I saw that tradition in there. I was a little mad that they showed like, it, they seem to show the entire plot in two minutes, you know, where it's like, yeah. oh, the father takes the rings. The son was in America. Now he's coming back. It looked like the mother fights the father. And, and then in the end, the son's fighting the father. I'm yeah, like, it, I hope there's like a third act that's not in this. I, I agree. <laughs> and it's, it's especially um, bizarre when you consider that uh, to be fair, I did not watch Falcon Winter Soldier, and I'm just probably not going to. But for both Loki and WandaVision, like, they went out of their way to be like, there were trailers, but, like, they didn't really give away the actual game. And even Black Widow, the trailer didn't give away who the real bad guy was. Like, the, once I saw the movie, I'm like, oh, I've seen scenes from the third act, but I still didn't know where it was going. And I agree, they, I feel like they're so desperate to sell this, and it's like, you know, it's Marvel. You don't have to... Like, you don't have to do the Robert Zemeckis, let's give away all of Castaway in the trailer thing that they that he loves to do. Um, I mean, look, maybe we're wrong, and Lord knows Kevin Feige is a smart um, ringmaster, if nothing else. Like, he knows how to market and make these movies. I, I am also a little like, I hope, like, we don't see the whole thing. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that father-son conflict is the end of Act 2, and there's more surprises yeah. in store. Um, yeah. You know. We'll see, right? Yeah, it, and with Eternals, that was more like okay, this looks visually very cool, mm -hmm. uh, but it's def also the B team, like not in terms of power, but just yeah. in terms of like charisma. Yeah, like, de all right, let's get another group together. <laughs> and look, it's really talented actors, right? I mean, you've got Brian T Terry Henry, you've got uh, Camille Nanjali. Uh, I'm sure I'm mangling the names, and I, I apologize, but. But you're right. It's just like, oh yeah, so this guy, he's like Cyclops, but he's not Cyclops. Like, he's a god. But don't worry about it. It's fine. Like just, it's, it's, it's fine. Yes. The, the, I was like, is that Cyclops? I was like, no, they're not allowed to do that. Yeah. I actually, uh, and spoilers for Loki, I guess. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen Loki, I'm about to spoil the ending, whatever. But I actually, I think it's kind of brilliant how they sort of backdoored through a TV show justification for, because I was always like, yeah, they have the, mar the mutants now. And like, they own the Fantastic Four now, but how the fuck is this going to work? Well, like, there's only so many heroes you can fit on a planet before they start running into each other. And now it's like, oh, it's a multiverse. Don't worry about it. And the thing is, like, you can't even get that bent out of shape because that's very Marvel just to be like, yeah, it's a different, um, you know, it's Earth B6. Yeah, it's fine. Like, that that's that's actually canon. <laughs> you know, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Sure, sure. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> But but at least at least um, at least they don't have to keep doing this game of like well you see uh, actually we were always doing that but we couldn't tell you because and then you know like like just in terms yeah. of yeah it's what I what I'm like with all these these Marvel movies coming now I have to admit that the thing that that now that I know they will eventually like um, coalesce into this massive uh times pondering like mega narrative i'm a little impatient for that to come together like i'm like okay i need to know how this is heading towards you know the next uh infinity war like infinity war 2 or whatever so it's gonna be i, I so um, i because they'll definitely try that again they they will but i i guess I'm trying to find the right way to put this. Like, I believe it. Like, I went from, I actually, I loved Endgame. I did. And I actually, I was sort of like, 
Why would I want to see the next Spider-Man movie? And then I actually found that delightful, right? But it was still like, okay, this is a lot yeah. of Marvel. This is a lot of, even for someone who loves it, it's a lot. And then, you know, the world stopped, right? Like, at least in terms of new stuff. For a long time, it stopped, other than these TV shows. And so... Yeah, true. It's actually built up a demand, for me at least, to the point where it's like, yeah, bring it on. And I, I for one, actually hope it does take a long time to get to Endgame 2, because with Endgame, it was like, part of the reason this works is that it's such a culmination of everything. And, like, if they just do that again, that you're going to get Avengers 2, which was just doing yeah. the same thing again, and, and not any kind of actual resolution, just like, ah, it's, it's a robot this time. Ah, it's bigger. You know, like, eh, you know. Yeah, because I guess it took them, I mean, from, what did it take them, like, uh, 11 years to get to Endgame? Yeah. Something yeah. like that, yeah. And if they only take like five years this time, that could be. I mean, you're gonna you're uh, gonna get Zack Snyder's Justice League, right? Like, obviously, I'm, yes. And I, whatever version, I don't care. No, but yes. it's, <laughs> but it's are. like, yes. <laughs> you know, it's it. You're trying to jumpstart that, and the reason the reason Endgame worked is because it took so long to get there. And if you paid attention, and if you put in the work, and it is work, right? Even though it's enjoyment, it is work to understand all the connections and everything. But it was all there. It was it was all like if you waited around and paid attention, here's the payoff to everything. And like they did, you know, like not not that everyone died, but like, you know, some things really did come to a conclusion. And that was yes. incredibly satisfying, you know. It, I do I do give those movies credit for that for like bringing stories to an actual end and not sort of a bullshit resting place. Yeah. People died. Yeah, people, people died kind of or ended their arc. Right, exactly. Like, Captain America retired. Like, you know, Hulk is now Professor Hulk. And the one guy they, they I mean, Scar Scarlett Johansson got fridged. Um, and now, thanks to her lawsuit, yeah. she will never work for Disney again. Um, and the one guy who didn't, Thor, it's like, actually, like, I'm super excited for fat Thor to, like, figure himself out. And, like, and uh, the only way you could possibly get me excited for uh, Natalie Portman to come back is if she becomes Thor, which she's gonna. So, like, cool. Like, let's do that. Cool. Why not? You know? Why not? Again, also canon. A canon. They're not in... Every time you're like, oh, people are gonna get pissed. And, I mean, people are pissed because men are the worst. But it's like, no, nah, Jane Foster is Thor. Like, that's a thing. That... That's not Kevin Feige being woke. Like, that's that's actually canon. That's the well. nice... That's... That is the one convenient thing about this is that everything they could possibly want to do like happened in some way in the comic book movies. So you'd be like, oh no, I'm doing that storyline from like 1987 where you know Thor was an alligator or Loki was right. an alligator, and right. it's fine. Exactly. <laughs> or 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 the few times the few times they don't right like Iron Man three with the Mandarin when it's like, oh yeah, it's just some like drunk actor that they're paying whatever. If people got upset, it's like yeah, the Mandarin's really racist. So like, unless you wanted to like do that, they had to think of something. Right. Which apparently also I, I just found again, I don't know who this villain is, but Kevin Feige had to go on the record being like, yeah, China, uh, Fu Manchu is not in Shang-Chi because apparently there is a villain named Fu Manchu who's like oh horrifically God. racist. And he was like, look, oh, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but yeah, no, no, no Fu Manchu. We're cool. We're cool. Right, China. We're cool. We're cool. All right. Cool. Wait, who is I haven't seen Black Widow. Who is the villain? Um, It's uh. I can't even remember. It, it's like the guy who designed the Black Widow program. Spo oh, okay. spo spoilers for Black Widow. So remember how she's always like, I have red on my, you know, I'm trying to clear my debt. Like what happened in Budapest, the whole thing. So you do. Mm -hmm. So basically you find out the way she got into S.H.I.E.L.D. was setting up the person who created the Red Room. Um, the actor. Oh, God, I can't remember. 
Um, mm-hmm. oh, wait, wait. In The Departed, uh, Mr. French. Who plays Mr. French? Ray, Winst- oh, Ray Winstone. Ray name. Winstone. Okay, Ray Winstone. There we go. Thank you. Yes. So, so Ray Winstone is the guy that she basically assassinates um, in a flashback. And the thing is, in order to do it, she also, like, accidentally assassinates the guy's daughter but like knows she's doing it. They're, they're like, is he in the building? And she sees the daughter and she's like, yes, he's in the building and they blow up the building. So like, she's lit. That's the guilt. She's that like, she, ah. she killed this innocent girl. And then it turns out, of course, the guy is not dead. He faked his death and blah, blah, blah. And so like, it's this giant plan and da, 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 da. Um, I, I'm making it sound dumber than it is. It's actually, the ending is quite satisfying. I, I let's not get too deep in the woods. We're already 15 yeah. minutes in and we have done no musicals, but um, drunk, drunk Taylor explains Marvel movies to me. <laughs> But all right, it's the new podcast. Well, so like the the movie trailers didn't show Ray Winstone, but they did show like the Taskmaster, who's like, who is this thing? And then it turns out Taskmaster, she didn't actually kill the daughter. She thought she killed the daughter, but like she just like permanently scarred her, and then he trained her to be the perfect weapon, and then at the end she frees Mm. her, and you know, girl power, all that. Again, I'm being a this is a really trite explanation of it, but yeah, that's yeah, yeah, whatever. That's that's what it's all about here. Um. (laughs) I, I to enjoy- bring it, bring it home. <laughs> I was gonna say to bring it home. Yes. Is there any good? Is is I guess Marvel movies. I mean, when you say like, do any of them have good music? I guess you're like, well, the Guardians of the Galaxy obviously have their mixtapes of like. You know the you know. the only I mean look they they've got decent film scores right and the the yeah. Aven- and the Avengers theme is iconic when it comes in it means something it's good. Yeah. Uh, the only, uh, I mean, I will tell you, even as a huge fan, the only album that I like own independent of just the Guardian soundtrack is the Thor Ragnarok soundtrack. Uh, it's Mark Mothersboro. Mm. And it's very new wavy, trippy, just like the movie itself. And that, I think, succeeds on its own as a piece of um, film music. But well, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll take a listen to that. I don't think I've really noticed the score of that before. So. Yeah, it's, it's delightfully, tri- I mean, look, it's the guy from Devo doing a Marvel soundtrack and it's as trippy as you would want it to be. Um, but otherwise, yeah. Other than the main Avengers theme, like I, you know, I'm not digging up the uh, Thor two soundtrack anytime soon. You know. Yeah, or like the soundtrack to, uh, like Captain America: Civil War. Just no. like a lot of rousing. Yeah. Like, dun 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> Just that. I mean, I I, I will say I think they did a good job of the themes of the different characters. Um, but uh, again, that's not enough for me to be like, oh yes, this you know like. Like, I own, I think, two of the soundtracks from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies because I love those soundtracks. And there's nothing as like, oh, I'm going to put this on to match the mood from any Marvel movie that I can think of as I sit here. Oh, so. this, the soundtrack of the ride to Pirates of the Caribbean is, like, better than any Marvel movie. <laughs> I mean, that's it's just, that's, you know, uh, there's no, no question. I'd no. rather, I threw on, uh, like, the... Uh, Airbnb I stayed in in Florida had this soundtrack to the Enchanted Tiki Room. Nice. That that would that bumped, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I uh, was maybe I, slightly racist, but it well, bumped. You know, it's Disney. What can you do? Uh, <laughs> I I will say that whatever your feelings on the Dark Knight, like that soundtrack owns. Like if you to put mm. on that music when it's like the Joker theme and then the Batman theme coming back and like the like the discordance. It's it's like peak peak Zimmer, and Zimmer like needs to maybe he could like take a break every now and again but like the soundtrack to the dark knight you can put that on as an independent piece of art and it's fucking fantastic nice um wait you said it is zimmer 
It is Zimmer. I think it, it's a collaboration. Yeah, yeah, you know, Zimmer it, is the... Well, it's Zimmer and James Newton Howard, I believe. And then eventually mm. Zimmer just took over, which I feel like happens a lot that he collaborates with people. And then he's like, yeah, on the next movie... That's my hand Zimmer accent. On next movie, I just I just do it. It's fine. <laughs> You're kind of doing Hans and Franz, except Hans is Hans Zimmer. Look, I'm ready to talk about these musicals. Okay. All right, let's listen to uh the overture from the first musical we're doing um natasha pierre, Na- natasha natasha no. pierre and the great comet of 1812 there's a war going on out there somewhere and andre isn't here there's a war going on out there somewhere and Andre isn't here. There's a war going on out there somewhere, and Andre isn't here. There's a war going on out there somewhere, and Andre isn't here. Okay, so I should, I do want to, before we talk about this, I should say the reason that we're here uh, is that we intended to record a secret podcast while Paul was helping his parents move. Uh, We didn't get around to that in a very Savage Beast move, just got distracted, other things were happening. But even though Paul is totally available to be here now, we decided to record this without him anyway because uh, he doesn't like mu- likes musicals. Uh, he doesn't like he doesn't like musicals, and uh, it's just we're sparing him. You know, we're sparing him having to pretend. You know, I I, I thought about um, when you had TJ on to do the the anime podcast, and after every single song, Paul was just like, "Yeah, video games." Oh, video games, right? Uh, whatever. But, the, but after every single one, Paul was just like, "Yeah, this isn't for me." Like, <laughs> and yeah, it was, this isn't really music and it was hilarious but it was like man like bringing nothing to the table like just <laughs> um now we're we're even paul did do one episode without me but there we go. uh i gave him permission for that but you know yes. whatever that's whatever it's you fine. know it's, it's technical technicality it's so fine. taylor yes uh tell us uh this musical is one of your choices tell us a little bit about it so as we just heard part of the overture, uh, which goes to great lengths, kind of 12 Days of Christmas style, to tell you every single character in the show. Obviously, we didn't play the whole thing. Um, and what's, I remember, so I saw this with my wife, Megan, uh, before to move to Broadway. It was, it was weird. It was, in, it was in Times Square, but it was a tent they had erected in like a parking lot. And then they built a theater inside the tent. And we had heard so much about this show. And we walked in, we're like, hey, do you have any tickets? And like the guy we were talking to, we thought he was the box office guy. Turns out he was one of the producers just like manning the box office thing. We were like, we heard so much about it. Like, you know, we're, we're theater majors. Like, I do this, I do that, but da, da, da. And he was like, I'm going to give you the producer's seats. And we're like, okay. And he's like, no, no, they're the same price. But like, yeah, I think you guys are going to be good for the producer's seats. So like we ended up getting the best seats in the house. Like, again, we didn't realize we were just, you know, buying tickets. And I remember... Uh, they couldn't do this on Broadway, but when it was off Broadway, you were in like this Russian, they had recreated a Russian dinner room. And the idea was that the show was right. happening all around. I remember you. that. Yeah. And so we're at the table and it's like, oh, uh, we're gonna, you know, you can have food, whatever. 
and and drinks, you know, by all means, please order. And like, oh, and if you want the soundtrack, uh, it's $18.12. And it's like, haha, okay, it's the show, like eighteen twelve. All right. And after act one, I wave the waiter over and I'm like, yeah, just bring me the soundtrack. And he's, Megan's like, are you sure? And I'm like, it, it, even if act two is the worst thing I've ever heard, like I have heard act one, I have heard enough, like this needs to be in my life. And I mean, it, it uh, I mean, just, I have, we're, we're listening to six shows tonight and they're all, they all, they all have different worth. They all have different values. They all do different things, but great comment out of any musical I think I've ever heard in my life that has this large of a cast, right? You put an asterisk if it's like a four, five person piece, but to have a show that has so many characters and they all have their own inner life, you know exact by the end of this show, you know exactly who everyone is, what their journey is, what's going on. It moves so fast. And yet if you're paying attention, it's all there. And the humanity of everyone is all there, even though they are, they are not all good people. In fact, most of them are not good people, but that's not the point. The point is that they are completely three-dimensionally human and you know all of their struggles, you know everything that's going on. And these, even even the villains, so to speak, like get their moments to show the, uh, the uh, one of the songs I think we're gonna listen to. Sh like there's a guy named, um, uh, it's not Anatov, it's, uh, well, whatever, <laughs> I'm a little drunk. But it, it's, it's Anatov's best friend who shoots, tries to shoot Pierre in a duel in act one and it, and they even in the, even in the overture they're like he's fierce but not that important but in, in the Dolokhov thank you the... yes Dolokhov so Dolokhov yes. you think he's just like the asshole's best friend who's also an asshole but then there's this amazing song which not only does it sound cool like the whole show just sounds cool which I know is like a really surface level does. thing but it just it, it it owns like when it wants to rock even though there's no guitar in it but when it wants to rock when it wants to be intense it's there. And in this moment, Dolokhov's like, hey, I know I gave you the money to, like, go do this, like, go elope with this woman even though you're married. And, like, I'm your buddy. I'm going to do it. But, by the way, this is a fucking terrible idea. And just a show to have the a show to have the wit to give every character that dimension. And I think a song right before it is Sonia Alone, which is the, the female, uh, Natasha's best friend is Sonia. It's her cousin. And throughout Act 1, she's supportive and whatever, whatever. But then she just has this moment of, like, uh, you're about to throw your life away and like you have no idea what you're doing and I guess I need to be the grown-up even though we're the same age because I love you so much and it's not a romantic love it's just this idea of like I'm not gonna let you throw your life away and what am I supposed to do and the fact that the show can take all of these individual moments in time and crystallize them but it never feels slow it never it is always moving and usually a show has to sacrifice uh, pacing for depth Right. It's either like, oh, it's, yeah. oh, it's this chamber piece where everything's brilliant, but like, oh, my God, it's so long or you're moving or it's Weber. Right. You move so fast that unless the actor can bring a depth of feeling, the words are not there. The music is it's fun, but it's not there to actually make anything that's more than just poppy. Um, well, I think that's I think that's kind of where a, a lot of the best musicals um, have like a unique power is that they can tell a story through these moments, but because they bring a combination of, uh, you know, these strong characters and the really, uh, uh, you know, the range of emotions in, that's available in the music that you can kind of, you know, through your imagination and, and empathy and intellect like string together mm -hmm. these like moments and it becomes like this story told in a different like 
register than if you were just like reading it as a novel. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, which this is, of course, <laughs> based on. <laughs> Not just is it based on War and Peace. It's based on like three pages of War and Peace. And that's so actually I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. It's yeah. actually from a 70 page. Thing, OK. All right. Which that, is like three that makes pages it... of a normal novel. Right. So. Right. Right. OK. The, I, the ratio I got yeah. right. But but just just that. Yes. But I mean, and I mean, what a what a you know how you talk about an unfilmable book. What a horrendous idea for a musical. We're going to take 70 pages of War and Peace and a lot of these songs are going to narrate what's happening. It's going to have a million characters with names you cannot pronounce. And um, it's going to be really good. It's going to be one of the best things you've ever seen in your life. If someone made that pitch, you would be like, how did you get into my office? But uh, here here we are with a show that I, I personally think is better than Hamilton. And I'm not saying that as a diss on Hamilton. I actually really like Hamilton. Mm. I, I loved yeah. it in the, in the... I saw it in the theater. I thought it lived up to the hype. And I literally like wrote a play about Hamilton and Burr. So like... Don't get me wrong. Hamilton's great, but I think a lot of the power of Hamilton is like you take these figures of history and you're giving them life. With this, it's like unless you are intimately familiar with War and Peace, instead it's like here are these characters who are nothing like you. And yet by the end of the show, it's like, oh, my God, like they're exactly like me or like I know that guy. I know that woman. Like I have seen these stories before, just never done with such such power, but also such humor and such wit and my God, the the catharsis at the end. And it's not even like much happens at the end, right? A lot of stuff happens during the show, but the final scene between Pierre and Natasha and then when he walks out and sees the comet, like dramatically not much happens, but there is not a dry tear in the house and it's not because anyone died. It's not because anyone fell in love. There is just connection and empathy. Um, and, yes. Um, yeah. I, I should say... A brief, a brief diversion to the official Savage Beast position on Hamilton is that the rapping is not good enough for the <laughs> uh, musical to be good. But fair, um, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. The, 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 what's what amazes me about this and what makes me want to see it, and I, you know, it's I, it's almost one of those musicals that I wish I don't know why I didn't see it. I was just doing, you know, New York. There's too it's, much to see. There's uh, too much to see. Yeah. Um, and uh, is that it is such a unique like section of of the this novel to pick with these like intertwined love stories that are very complicated and, and sort of, and then also this like Russian existentialism, you know, some it's like Pierre is just kind of, I don't know if he's seems like he's just drifting around trying to yeah. figure out what his life means. And he doesn't, so he I, has a very Russian uh, role to play in the plot where his, his misery kind of sparks people to action yes actually th- we're, we're, we're gonna call an audible here i know so we did the overture i was gonna say we were gonna do preparations but let's let's play pierre here because i think that is the heart of the show so let's listen to that for okay. a little bit it's dawned on me suddenly and for no obvious reason that i can't go on living as I am. The zest of life has vanished. Only the skeleton remains unexpectedly vile. My, uh, my final thing with this show, and because I saw it twice, I saw it off Broadway, and then I saw it on Broadway with Josh Groban. And no disrespect to Mr. Groban, he he's a better singer than Dave Malloy, and he worked his ass off. But his Pierre was much more like uh, a, a, 
uh, uh, Misery of the Soul. And they actually added a song. Um, it's a good song, but they, they had to add a song because Dave Malloy's Pierre that you just heard, not only is it existential, but it's literally like, I am drinking myself to death. And that is something Josh Groban, Josh Groban has many quivers in his arsenal, but being a f full alcoholic is not one of them. So they had to add a song about more like, I want, I want to wake up, like I, I, I need like some sort of connection. And it worked for that version of the show. But like the original one I saw, it's like, yeah, no, I get it. Like you are drinking yourself to death. And the, like that first line, <laughs> that first line of like, it's dawned on me suddenly. And for no obvious reason, I cannot go on living as I am. I mean, like that is, that's not just a midlife crisis. Like that is a deep anguish cry of the soul that I think any human being who is seriously thought about anything in his life has had that moment of like, I just, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like whatever this is, it cannot continue. And it's not even, it's not even like I had, you know, I got hit by a car or like, you know, my, my baby was born. It's just like, I don't know why, but today, Tuesday, like, this is it. This is the line. I can't do this anymore. Um, and to start a show like that, holy shit. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a, a good way to get the act, to kick the action off. Yes. So, to speak. so anyway, great comment uh, is, is one of, in my opinion, the great works of the 2010s. Um, period I don't, any medium it just it so fully took me body and soul and i've listened to it a bunch of times and it never gets old for me um okay uh let's listen to a song from once yes Scratching out the surface now And I'm trying hard to work it out If so much has gone misunderstood And this mystery only leads to doubt And I didn't understand You reach down and take my hand And if you have something to say You better say it now Cause this is what you've waited for Your chance to even up the score Okay, so once is a musical that was uh, a movie first yes and then became staged musical but it was a musical movie uh taylor we saw it together we did recall i oh i yeah. yeah and it was kind of on a whim like oh we've heard this is good let's see and i remember both of yeah. us walking we were just looking for yeah yeah we were looking for something to see because we had nothing to do like before i like went home on the bus that day or some, something yeah. like that and I remember walking out just being thoroughly rattled, but not it just. It's like when you see a great work of art and you're just not expecting it. It was like, yeah, I heard this is good. Whatever, let's, yes. let's go see it. And you just walk out like, oh my god, like Jesus. 
Yeah, and I, I assume our audience is probably a lot more familiar with this one, um, having you it, know it having been a very popular movie, especially with our uh, cohort. Yes, yes. Um, and then the show won the Tony but, and was like, it was a huge hit, and you know, so yeah. Yeah, and then they went on to start dating the the actor and you know Glenn yes. Hansard and um, I can't remember her name form a band called the Swell Season and they were a couple and yeah. Um, it didn't work thing, out. Just, yeah. <laughs> no, it didn't work out. But that, I just remember what that show was that it, it, the reason it kind of exemplifies the power of musicals, first off, is that, you know, musicals are often about music and that is fine. It's, it's a good way to bring the action of the music like onto stage, but still tell a story. Yeah. Um, and I just remember there's so many moments because this, you know, the show is about like, sort of a parallel of like falling in love and like creating art, like creating their, you know, album on a shoestring budget. And uh, it's just good. You know, it told both of those stories better because they were paired and because uh, they were, they were sung. Um, And yeah. And that's, we were both like, I do, I do remember that feeling of walking out of there being like, because we were completely surprised. We were just like, Oh, this is supposed to be a good movie. It sounds fun. Like, you know, and we were just, um, uh, blown away for lack of the better yeah. word. Well, and I, and the movie. So I confession, I did not see the stage show, and part of the reason was I was like, this movie is so perfect. How could you yeah. top that? But then when when I was listening to the music for this podcast, it was like, oh, I get it. Like because even because the movie, I I I'm really glad they never tried to like remake it. I mean, for multiple reasons, because almost all Hollywood remakes blow. Not all of them, but most of them. But that movie it was such a I hate this phrase, but it, it it applies. Cinema verite, like just that. There are moments where it's like they did not get permission. They just filmed people on the streets of Dublin, right? They just they just fucking went for it. And like a lot of the musicians, they're not actors. They're just musicians that like they knew. And that is lightning in a bottle. You can't. It's really hard to recreate that in any measurable way. Like the the song I uh, if you want me. In the movie, it's her just walking down the street listening to headphones. And so it's like her creating the words as you're listening to the beat. But, like, they didn't pay for extras. They just fucking filmed her walking down the street. And it's it's just, it's it's remarkable. And so when I was listening to, but when I'm listening to the show, it's like, you know what? Having someone sing that live with that depth of feeling, even if it is a recreation, that is also a different way to connect the raw. This show is so raw. Like, it is just so... You know, I, I think part of the reason Paul, I'm going to speak for Paul because he's not here. One of Paul's objections to musicals is that it's just like, you know, why are these people singing? Like, you know, it's, a, <laughs> yeah. it's like they're talking. It's and a fair question. And, why are you singing? Well, and, and the only way a good musical, right? It's where, unless if the whole thing is sung, which can be done. Like if you do an opera, you do an opera, right? But the idea is that like the power of their emotions is so strong that the only way to express themselves and be heard is if they sing and like man if you're at a show where that is not there and whether it's it's usually not the performers it's usually the material sometimes the performers but like if if that feeling is not there then you're like oh this is what we're doing now we're just we're just doing a song like okay cool um and that can be amusing but like you're never you're never gonna get to that top echelon and somehow with this they took a lightning in a bottle film and, and just the rawness of the performers and their emotions, which is there in the movie, but, like, you also get this grimy, real-world, you know, lived-in thing, which 
I don't care how good your production designer is on a show, your set, your set designer, like it's all an illusion, right? And that's part of the beauty of theater. It's an illusion. But these performers, yeah. these performers on these on this track, you just hear the pain even as they're and they're not even singing sad. I mean, some of the songs are sad, but some of them aren't. But just this this rawness that is there, and again, this word human, right? It is so you you've met these people, and if you, even if you haven't met these people, you've had that feeling. And in order for it to communicate that with artists making art, which is one of the more masturbatory tracks you can take right how many screen how many movies it's like this screenwriter is trying to write a movie you know like adaptation i know adaptation <laughs> has its fans but it's just the most like i couldn't figure out how to adapt this so i made a story about this it's like okay awesome great like i also have you know taken english classes um but with with once the movie it feels like no this is actually what happened in a way and with the show at least the rawness of that feeling it it they pull it off they pull a rabbit out of the hat it's beautiful well, and, and I think that uh, this show uh, exemplifies, because it's right on the line, some of the other shows we talk about will, you know, could be a uh, more, how do I say this, uh, more glaring contrast. But this <laughs> this show, you know, <laughs> is, you know, there's a, there's a big difference between this being a musical and these just being songs on an album yeah. and that's because you know it it achieves you by by tying them together and telling a story as part of a you know theatrical experience um you know with the you know the score and the lyrics in the book um you know you can achieve this range of expo emotional expression that you just can't access if you only have like the like four tight minutes of a pop rock song. Yeah. You know, you can't there's you can't tell these stories just by singing them. And that seems strange because the singing and the is the the core part of the of musical theater, but it still requires the um everything you build uh around it. Yeah. Um to to really tell a story um with that many emotions and this this is the only i believe i think so this is the only show that we're doing where they took a movie and they made a show out of it and lord no, there's plenty of those right there's plenty of those and some of them are the worst thing you can imagine and um <laughs> but with this yeah. it, but with, well, a lot of those were a lot of those were movies that weren't musicals that then yes. became yes. musical. That that's yeah. That's Man, troubling. the 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 first half of the High Fidelity musical I saw before I walked out of it is one of the worst like oh, hour and a half of my life. Oh no! Oh god! <laughs> it was so bad. I saw some nineteen some Matthew Broderick in like some nineteen twenties or thirties jukebox musical. Yes. It was very weird. And after the show, I was there with my parents. And after the show, I was like, you know, kind of like, and my parents were like, well, you know, we really, my mom, my mom was like, yeah, I just, I would have left after the first act. And I was like, <laughs> oh, me too. Why didn't we say that? We were all just like, we would have left. So it wasn't that good. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take that and I'm going to top it. Um, so uh, seventh grade, right? Seventh or eighth grade. Uh, we are in Orlando, mm -hmm. and Cats has come to the Bob Car. My parents have a subscription, oh, no. and they're like, "Ugh, the Bob Car." Yeah, I know, right? Well, all right. So wait for it. So they're like, "Well, you know, we already have the tickets," and like, I guess, I guess he should see Cats. Like, all right, fine. So they take me and our good friend Travis, 
and we go and we're gonna see cats um and so i sit through act one and the lights go up my parents are like so what do you think i look at the stage and i look at them and like this is like eighth grade taylor or ninth grade taylor it could have been seventh grade it must have been eighth grade or ninth grade but I just look at them and I'm like, I feel like it's a giant in-joke and the audience is on the outside. Like, what is this about? Like, what? Why should we care? Like, what? And later on, <laughs> later on my, my mom, Shelly, my mom was just, she was like, I was just so proud that my little, you know, my little middle schooler is like bringing this Ben Brantley style criticism of like, what is this? Like, why should anyone care about this? And so I was ready to go. My parents are like, we've seen cats. We can go. And TJ's like, I kind of like it. Can we stay? And there's just this moment of like, <laughs> I guess I get yeah I guess this is what we're uh, this is what we're gonna do. <laughs> that was good. You did good work there. We did. I mean, look, it was the right thing, but just this. Uh, look, it, if you don't know TJ, it's not that funny. But if you do, it's just sort of like of all people to be like, I'm actually kind of like, can we stay? Is that okay, guys? And it's like, yeah, it's um, that's what we're gonna do because we're we're not terrible people. But like, and that's how I saw the second <laughs> half of Cats because I was ready to go. Like I was ready to walk. <laughs> was it better than the first half? I don't remember. Uh, probably yeah, not. Yeah, who can? I saw a lot of I saw a lot of bad productions at the Bob Carr, which was like a box. It's it's it was the Orlando theater for when we were growing up, and it was just a box where sound went to die. It's so true. I mean, like, and also, but also the very bad. The quality of the tours we got were also really bad. Um, like my yes, my par- Orlando was really a third rate town oh, at that time, and. I remember my parents sometimes were just like, please don't judge the show by like this production that we're seeing. Like, like I, we, I saw a terrible Grease. I saw a terrible Jesus Christ uh, superstar. I, I, I saw, I saw those, man. Oh. I saw those. But actually, and I saw, yeah, bad chorus line. Oh. And, and I remember like, but uh, 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 what's the Carol Channing show? Hello Dolly. Hello Dolly was coming through, and it was like Carol Channing's last tour. So, like, during her Hello, Dolly number, like, everyone's standing up and applauding, and she's so old that, like, she can barely move. I, I, but she's standing... See that? Well, let, let me just let me finish. That was a peak. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, look, like, with time, right, I get the context. But now I'm in the... Te- I'm, in, I'm now 10th grade Taylor. And, like, Hello, Dolly is a dumb show. And I'd seen a lot of dumb shows, but it's a dumb show. And I'm like, she's so old. And, like, I can't even hear her. And then when everyone's applauding, I was like, why are we applauding her? Like, I didn't, like, stand up and yell, but I was just like... I just, I don't get it. Like, she's not even doing it that well. My mom is like, she's a legend. Like, you have to show some respect. I'm like, why? Like, I don't, and it's just like, if you don't know and you're not seeing someone do anything that great, you're just like, the hell yeah. is this? I had I had fun that, I mean, I have a little soft spot for Hello, Dolly, because I was like in it in fifth grade. It's not, it's, it is a dumb show. Um, like, it's not memorable. Uh, I mean, I don't think anyone would care about it at all if it wasn't for Carol Channing. Um, and weirdly, but... th- there's a lot of um, there's a lot of Wally stands that uh, were reintroduced to Hello Dolly because that's the movie he watches. The robot watches. Wally. Oh yeah. And um, well, and yeah, yeah. I you know, but I'm all I'm all for musicals being a way for people to just like have fun watching music. So if everybody was having fun watching Carol Channing. I still, it was still cool to like give someone a standing ovation in the middle of the show. Oh, I want to be, I, I want to be that. clear. I was, like, I, I was being a dick. I was fun. being a dick. I was being yeah. a dick. Like, yes, I, tenth grader. Yeah, I'm, tenth I'm grader. not, I'm not saying my position was correct. It's just I have this very vivid memory of like, why are we doing this? Like, she's not even that good. <laughs> okay, next, next musical. What are we gonna listen to, Taylor? Uh, let's do Little Shop. Little Shop. 
Little shop of horrors. But that's not the song we're going to do. Little shop of horrors. Let us. Yeah, which, what song are we listening to? We are listening to the movie version of Skid Row. Sing it, child. is um alan menken and howard ashman r.i.p uh who were this amazing songwriting duo and they wrote this show little shop of horrors um it's weird for some people they're going to be like why do i care about this and other people are going to be like of course i know this story it's fucking little shop but whatever just deal with it um and they have will they of course because of this show disney hired them to do little mermaid and then the success of little mermaid led to Beauty and the Beast, and the success of that led to Aladdin, where Howard Ashman tragically uh, did not survive production. He he died of AIDS, and uh, which is why Tim Rice came in to finish Aladdin, which is why if you go back, like the songs don't, it, they're great songs, but they don't quite fit together, and it's literally because he had a different collaborator. And also, um, Howard Ashman really uh, had some father issues, and so a lot of his songs that he wrote right before he died were about like Aladdin trying to like make peace with his father and like you're going to be proud of me those show those songs ended up not being in the movie they went a different direction but they weirdly they brought them back for both the third Aladdin movie and then the stage version brings in a lot of those songs that were cut back um interesting yes so there, there's I've heard I've heard a little bit that there is those cut yeah. That there was like a lot of stuff cut from Aladdin, but yeah. I, I don't think yeah. I knew that was but, why. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, you know, the idea was that, and originally like Aladdin's mom was alive in like the original version of it to the point where they, they even animated some scenes. And then at some point they're like, yeah, this makes no sense. So like, we got to make him an orphan. Like, let's just, just get, you know, it's Disney. He's an orphan. Deal with it. Um, anyway, but the, so this is a long way of saying that, but for Little Shop, you would not have those three of the four crown jewel Disney movies, they would not exist. And it's, and it's because uh, these guys took this old Roger Corman movie um, and turned it into this amazing show that played in the village. It never played Broadway until years later. It was, it was an off Broadway hit. And, uh, yes. and this song Skid Row, especially the movie version, it is the angriest I want song uh, that I am aware of in musical theater. And the, the I want song, it's um, the, the, perfect ex- uh, the perfect example is Little Mermaid, part of your world. It's, it's the idea like, this is what the hero wants if o- or the heroine. If only I could have this, then I could be happy. Like, this is my journey. And with Skid Row, and again, specifically the movie version, I'll get to why that matters in a moment. It's not only catchy, it's not only fun, but it is so fucking dark. Like and and it hides it because there's there's a tempo and there's this and there's that but the lyrics are just so painful and it just speaks to this idea of like you are stuck here and this is 
you know, uh, poor. All my life I've always been poor. I ask God what I'm for, and he says, gee, I'm not sure. Sweep that floor, kid. Like, and, and it's it's Rick Moranis singing, right? So it's like, ah, oh, he's a lovable nerd. But, like, there is rage there, and it's real. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> All right. So, man, it's a, it is a, yes, it's a, it is dark. I mean, that's, that's, it's about feeding people to a giant plant. It's a dark right, but, but, show. But it's overall. so, inter- it's so entertaining. You kind of forget that. Um, so, and here's, here's the critical difference, right? Um, so you have seen the movie, correct? Yes. It's been a long while. Okay. Yes. And, and, and then you saw the stage show, correct? Uh, Trinity. I mean, I mean, <laughs> high school. Right. Right. Yes. So, so here, here's, all right, here, here's, here's. Wait, they did do Little Shop there, right? They, they did. We weren't in it. It's like the only show we didn't do. Uh, at least the only show I didn't do. But um, I didn't do that or Annie because yes. I, I just wasn't into being in the musicals. I was kind of a snob about doing the the theater shows at that. I, I mean, I Joe, you were. We'll get to it later. You were in one musical, and it's because my mom blackmailed all my friends to like, you're all gonna be in my fucking show, and. We all did. Uh, she was right to do so. <laughs> but but uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But with so with Little Shop, and it's weird, our Trinity production, um, I mean, it was smart on Mr. Taylor's behalf, even for someone so thoroughly checked out. Mr. Taylor is our theater teacher. Um, for someone so thoroughly checked out, it was smart to put in scenes from the movie so there's an excuse to have more actors on stage. But the critical difference between the film and the show uh, is that the show ends with the plant eating Audrey eating Seymour and taking over the world, right? Like that, that is the sick joke of the ending. So they filmed that ending for the movie originally, and it's on the Blu-ray. And and as a piece of special effects work, it's fantastic. As a sick joke, it's amazing. Because like, not only does Seymour die in Audrey, but like you get to see that all these giant Audrey twos, like King Kong size Audrey twos, just eating the world. And it like, it's fantastic. And the problem is that you can do that on stage, right? Because you can do that on stage because right after the plants take over the world, all the actors come out for the curtain call, like, ah, it's a fun time. Everyone had great fun, whatever. But apparently for the test screenings for the movie, the audience went from like, I love it, to like, what the fuck is this? Like, what? Like, they all die? Like, the, everyone dies? <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why I'm talking about Skid Row is the critical difference here is that this was written to be a off-Broadway show, right? You got the plant, all the money's on the plants. You got Seymour, you got Audrey, you got Mushnick, you got the three singers, and the dentist, I think his uh, name is Oren. I always just think of him as Steve Martin, but it's technically Oren. Um, so the actor who plays the dentist then played every other character who came into the world. It's a low-budget show. But as a result, there's this artificiality, Ah. right? There's this like, oh, he died, but it's fine. Like, he's just coming right back. Um, Yes, which is hilarious. That's that's just funny. Right. And again, that that disguises you from the horror, right? And they also, it's much more of a straight-up Faust tale um, in in the stage show. Like, it's very clear, like, Seymour is selling his soul, and then he pays the piper. He loses Audrey. He loses Mushnick. he, He loses his life. You know, it's the bargain of Mephistopheles, da-da-da. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way. It's just, it, it's it's the world's coolest retelling of the Faust story. Um, other than Gertrude's Faust, which, you know, if you have like five fucking hours to listen to it. Anyway, I'm a drama major, and then I became a lawyer. But, so in, in this version of Skid Row, I swear to God I'm coming back to it, by opening it up, by having other people who are good singers, but they're costumed, and they just look tired as fucking hell singing this song by having Seymour's moment of like, I just want to get out of here. And he comes up against a chain link fence and it's like, 
it's like they're zombies trying to come over the fence. They're not actually zombies, but the, the look is very similar, right? And so as a result, suddenly, even though it's a it's clearly a studio backlot, there's a whole world populated with people who are just so fucking desperate and they're so crushed and they're so sad. And so when you have that, and then you're really rooting for Seymour, and then to have him die, the audience was just like, no, like we just we just refused to accept this. So they changed it. And they added Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, nominated for the Oscar. It should have won. It didn't. Um, and it, they put in a happy ending. And in order to, to get there, they make little cuts during the whole movie that take away Seymour's culpability. They make him more swept along in all of this. Whereas in the stage show, in the, here's the critical difference, right? For uh, for Supper Time, which I believe, no, um, we're going to, well, whatever. Uh, in Supper Time, it's the song where Mushnik dies. Mm-hmm. In the stage show, you know, you know much more about this than I. Do. <laughs> in the, in, I just, yeah. In the stage show, um, Mushnik catches on to what's going on. Uh, Mushnik is is the guy who owns the plant shop, and he's like, "We're going to the cops. You killed the boyfriend. Like, yes, he was a jerk. It's murder. Like, we're done here." And Seymour says, "Oh, well, don't don't you want the night's receipts? Because um, they're they're in the plant. Yeah, go in the plant. That's where they are." Mushnik goes into the plant. And he's fucking murdered, right? And and at that point, there's there's no doubt that Seymour has made some choices. Because yes, the dentist dies, but like, oh, could he have actually saved him? I don't know. He was a bad guy. Mushnik's not a bad... He's an asshole, but like, he didn't deserve to die. Um, in the movie, Mushnik's like, I'm taking you to the cops. And then he's like, or what if you got out of town and just tell me how to feed the plant? I'll take over. You go. Well, not, you know, and the, and the plant opens its mouth and Seymour's like, well, I, I don't know. Um, 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 and then chomp. don't get me wrong. Seymour's a little culpable, but not nearly as much. And they also cut, uh, there's a song called The Meek Shall Inherit, which in the movie, it's like a blip. But in the show, it's a huge thing where like he could kill the plant, but he's like, I'll lose Audrey. So I guess I'm going to sign this deal. And again, it's very, very Faust, very whatever. And they cut that too. And they had to make these adjustments um, because otherwise the ending wouldn't work. Um, now, uh, this is very divisive. Some people think the movie's great and then they fuck up the ending. I love that dark ending, but it just does not work at all in the film. And to drive it home, so I grew up watching this movie. I was in Japan. Uh, for a while I lived in Japan, uh, second to fifth grade. And so I love the movie. I love the movie. And my parents are like, oh, there's a production of Little Shop. It's in Japanese. But, like, there'll be subtitles. Do you want to go? And I was like, yes, I love that movie. Let's go. So here's the thing. It was in Japanese, but, like, they did the show. And so when Audrey dies and then Seymour dies and the plants take over, the lights come up. My parents are like, so what do you think? And I'm like, what did they do to it? And they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, everyone died like what is this the japanese version and they're like what are you talking like shut up like simmer down because i was like really angry and they're like honey that's how the show ends i'm like i have seen that movie like he does not die like and they're like oh right we didn't we didn't warn you we didn't oh yeah we didn't tell you um this that was (laughs) that's quite a journey i mean i think that that uh I don't think I even remembered how any of it ended. I mean, my, my like concept of it is like, uh, Steve Martin is like killing people as a dentist and Rick Moranis is killing people with the plant and they have to find the people to feed. I kind of remember the death scenes, right. but I, it's always been like out ah, of plants eating people. But I think if I saw it as the, the, um, 
the off-Broadway musical version. That sounds amazing. I'd feel that really like I, that seems like the pure little shop to me. I, and you're not alone, right? That's that's what a lot of people. Yeah. Think. Which is also why it's never succeeded on Broadway because if it gets, look, you can do it in a movie, right? You can make it that big in a movie, and it's a great movie. It, it is one of the great movie musicals, honestly. But I never wanted to see the Broadway version because I'm like, yeah, I don't need like a better plant, and I don't need a Broadway theater to tell this story right it, it becomes more well, fake and plastic that way i think yes and and that's something that like i think about musicals and why and i i'm, I'm gonna expand people not liking musicals far beyond paul but people not being excited about it in general or like stereotyping is because people think of it it like has to be in this big like 500 seat you know 600 seat theater yeah. and like just grand production and like a lot of these musicals a lot of them just aren't actually aren't good, but a lot of them are more meant for like to be an intimate performance. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of bands that aren't as good or it's not as fun when they get to the bigger venue. Like you might still kind of enjoy the music, but like when you were in the club and you were like connecting to the performers, like whether as a musical or right. a, uh, uh, a show, um, a, a, a rock show or a, a, you know, any whatever type of music, like it's, it's more, you know, there's there's like a real connection there that you can lose. And I yeah. think a lot of people's impression of musicals comes solely from like sitting in the mezzanine of Bob Carr, like watching, you know, yeah. even something decent like, uh, let's say, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And which is I mean, that's a good show. It's just more than decent. But um, uh, and they're like, you know, eh, what, you, you know, it's not it would be much different if you're in like a hundred something seat theater and you're seeing like. You know, I've seen like bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson, uh, oh, which was like fucking nuts to see with like, it was just, I don't know. I saw it off. It might've been off, off Broadway. There were not many people in that theater and it was just, you know, so you must have, it's in you, your face. Yeah. You must've seen it at the public. And I, I do wish I had seen that at the public yes. because yes. Megan and Megan. It's and, like in the smaller theater yeah. there or I don't know. I can't so remember. So yeah. Me yeah. Megan and I saw that show. Um, the first preview on Broadway because it was like, oh, Jackson for Jackson. All the seats were 20 bucks. So it's like, sure. And you know, it's entirely possible in a smaller venue, it would have worked. But man, on a big stage, it was just like, what is this? Like, what is going on? I, I felt no yeah. connection to it whatsoever. Um, yeah. And, and in, in the small theater, I mean, that. so there's a good example. In the small theater, you're like trapped in the room with this madman and he's like going insane because his wife died and you yeah. know, and, and it was just it, it. I'm not sure that it made a. I still don't know that if it, it made total sense, but it was like a really uh, visceral experience. I bet. Uh, I bet you, because one of the things that really annoyed me was when he like kills the narrator. But I bet. I bet if that happened in a smaller space and you didn't see it coming, it would have been like, oh my god. But on the, on on Broadway, it was yes. just like, okay, cool. So we're doing that now. Like, great. Like this is super edgy, guys. Yes. Like awesome. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so. That's. I think that's a. Uh, something to consider so now the the you. the paradox of yeah. little shop right is that because it is now such a property um it's like the best experience of it is probably the movie even though it has a very different ending and very whatever because at least you still get some of that intimacy whereas like the only way you're going to get an intimate little shop of horrors these days is if it's a community theater production because otherwise they want to fill here's the problem right they need to fill the biggest venue unless you have a producer who's willing to lose money on it or unless you have a nonprofit backing you up you need the bigger space because these things are so expensive 
that like you need the butts and seats, which means you need more seats. So it's it's very as a financial prospect, which look, if you want to make money, just don't go into theater at, on any level. But as a financial prospect, they want shows that can play in those bigger houses. And I mean, like, look, uh, you saw Avenue Q, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. So now imagine Avenue Q. Almost picked, almost picked it for one of my shows. It's actually. it's a wonderful show, and I'm really glad that when it was on Broadway, it was in like a super small theater because then like you didn't quite lose the intimacy, and like they made an effort to, you know, go to the balcony for some things and like and play it off. But let me put it this way: there's a reason that show did not survive in Vegas in like a 2,000 seat theater. Like, and I don't care how good it is, it's just not going to yeah. work. It's just not. You know? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Like whereas um didn't we didn't we see Spam a lot in Vegas I think the Monty Python show we did see Spam a lot and that was yes. that was a show that I saw I yeah well I just I remember the Vegas version be like you know what this kind of works because this is all like this is all fake and stupid anyway like it's it, it's already a parody of a musical so the Vegas version like we don't lose much this actually kind of works like to make it as even bigger and dumber right like with uh with uh what's the guy uh. The boss from Seinfeld in it. Oh right, yes, the, yes, he was yes. the king, John Harriman. I don't yes. remember his actual name, but yes, he was hilarious. Yep, <laughs> he was good. Um, okay, let's let's move to our next musical. Fiddler, as we've already talked about several. Fiddler, Fiddler, Fiddler. So we're gonna listen to Wonder of Wonder, Miracle. Lions I'm keeping that in. Um Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. God took a Daniel once again. Stood by his side and miracle of miracles. Walked him through the lion's den. Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles. I was afraid that God would frown. But like he did so long ago in Jericho, God just made a wall fall down. When Moses softened Pharaoh's heart, that was a miracle. When God made the waters of the Red Sea part, that was a miracle too. But of all God's miracles, large and small, the most miraculous one of all, is that out of a worthless love? Uh, okay, so um, Fiddler uh, is, I, I will say that, you know, it was a musical that I was, um, my elementary school that went through sixth grade, uh, Park Maitland School, where many of our friends and enemies in high school uh, came from, um, uh, staged a show at the infamous Bob Carr. Uh, once a year for the sixth starring the sixth graders and with a uh, small role for the fifth graders. Um, so when it was my turn in sixth grade, we did Fiddler on the Roof, um, which I know my parents were glad we didn't do some crap like Oklahoma or I don't know, I guess they'd done like Oklahoma and Tom Sawyer and God, those musicals are bad. Um, well, well, hold on. Oklahoma is deeply Tom's, platic, but Tom Sawyer sucks. Like that's, that's, that's just yeah, a terrible yes. show. <laughs> Tom Sawyer sucks. Um, <laughs> Let's be clear here. But um, Fiddler is 
uh, I knew nothing about it. I mean, I was in sixth grade, so I didn't really know much about anything. Um, it's a very intense show to have sixth graders do. Um, it, you know, briefly, if you don't know, it's about um, the goings on in a poor uh, Jewish village in Russia, um, and especially the family of Tevya, uh, the um, milkman, dairy farmer, and his uh, three, his wife and three daughters, all of whom are looking for uh, husbands. And, uh, you know, eventually the um, the Cossacks come in and, you know, kick all the Jews I, out. I mean, look, look, if you're listening, if you're listening to Savage Beast Musical Edition, you don't know what happens in Fiddler. Like, fuck yourself. I just. That's true. It's like, I co- just comment, to, comment once. I, like, OK, sure. But like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I, I'd like to emphasize this, though, because it really is quite a story like talking about a story that you really couldn't tell another way oh yeah i mean except if you were a thousand a thousand in a way that's like popular and like reaches a broad audience i mean there's such a range of emotions like oh, yeah. joy joy to heartbreak like pure tragedy like resilience there's still hope at the end when literally their whole town so, is being destroyed so joe here, here's and, here's a here's a fun yeah. here's a fun and, test here's a fun test Yes. How how yes. can you how can you say you're not Jewish without saying you're not Jewish when you're like I never heard of Fiddler like there it is I, I'm not <laughs> I'm not I'm not even that's true I was so I was telling a good friend today that uh, I was doing Fiddler and she's like oh the show of my people I'm like there was no irony on that whatsoever and this is uh hi Emily uh, she said she was gonna Man. listen uh, th- I mean this is a beloved uh, friend of mine who is like butch lesbian uh, you know public defender tough as nails but like she is jewish and she knows every fucking word of fiddler on the roof like she also loves musicals but she's like independent of that like you can be christian and not know jesus christ superstar but like if you're jewish and you don't know fiddler like are you jewish because it's just it is (laughs) it is such like and you're right it it is this it's like on paper kind of like little shop but even more so because it like actually happened it's dark as fuck but because you have if i was a rich man it's like oh no this is fine and then you're like all oh, right, like then they had to leave, and like yeah, that they that actually happened. Like that pogroms were very well, very real. Like, that's what's I think makes Fiddler like really wonderful is that it does the because the presence of these songs shows in the town where like you know life is from you know a uh, you know, a distant view from a. a it, it's it it sucks or is like dreary. Mm-hmm. You know, people are very poor, and but like through these songs and getting these people's lives like you see like how much like you know happiness and living is taking on you know and and you can connect with them and it's like it's not um uh it's sort of that that and you know their their own observations and of course you know you i I think jewish or not you learn a lot about like the human condition watching you know any good theater like this this show in particular yeah um you you kind of connect in that way and um it uh and that's where like it's with the song like matchmaker which is about you know how these three girls are you know it's kind of a it's it's on the surface like a joke song okay that you know the matchmaker is going to come and like uh you know make them marry like a dr- a drunken wife beater or a right. really fat dude or an old guy but they're all also so i was watching like a cast recording of it today like and they're just so like you know still filled with hope and youthful energy as they yeah. sing it 
um, that you're also like cheering for them. Um, and that's and that's where it comes to this song. This song, when we when I did the show in sixth grade, like I don't know, I guess you know, I was also like just entering uh, the phase where I was interested in uh, you know the romantic side of things. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, I this song maybe was a little silly then, but it's like always stuck with me as like something a song that's like really pure like innocent joy like a good thing if you're in a good mood it just kind of like it gets in my head and listening to it again today it's because it really is just like taking this you know the stories that i should say the story around the song is that uh you know model the tailor is like they've convinced tevia to let him marry his oldest daughter even though um she was originally supposed to marry the um the drunken wife beater lazar wolf lazar no lazar wolf I don't oh think he's a wife beater. no 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 he's just old he, he's he's fine he's <laughs> he's old i think he's the tap the barkeeper the tavern owner or something i forget he's just he's old and like wealthy and it's like and a widower as as right the, the, yes and a widower and so model's like so happy and so he sings these like stories of triumph from uh you know the the old testament and um in a way that just then immediately connects you to to their like young love and it's i don't know it's it's yeah. beautiful it, it um, is it is beautiful two and a half minutes so uh bit of bit of history and then a bit of personal history um so fiddler was so important when it came out um not just because it was good i mean it was good but it wasn't just that it was really the first mainstream success about jewish life right and for an industry so populated um with with jews and and so many jewish writers who like rogers and hammerstein had to write oklahoma like they couldn't write their story like south pacific and they did i mean they were the masters of what they did right but the whole point is this was the first time that it's like there's no way around we'll get to that in a minute there's no way around fiddler being just like it is the story of of this group of jewish people but it became universal especially for american jews right and not only did it run 3,000 performances, but it was the revival of Zero Mostel's career because he was blacklisted and he could not, he just could not get arrested, right? Because he refused to name names. And then, and he's in this show, which no one thought was going to be a hit because it's like, you're, ter- you're telling, you're taking this story of like the milkman and it ends really depressing. Like, why is Long Island, why are the people from Long Island who were not Jewish going to come and see this show? 3,000 performances, and Zero Mostel was uh, invited to the White House, which at that point was like, oh, he can get arrested again, so to speak. Like, So it, it was it was the revival of a great man and a great artist's career with the role that like defined him. And I, I mean, obviously he was in The Producers, and he was, a, he was always a great actor, but he will also, like, every other, it's like James Bond, right? There's only one Sean Connery, there's only one Zero Mostel. Um, which... Fast forward, uh, I briefly, before I went to law school, uh, I did intern with 101 Productions and they ran a bunch of Broadway shows and they had uh, the fit, not the all Hebrew fiddler, which recently ran on Broadway. This was the um, the Alfred Molina production. And it was a big to do that Alfred Molina was cast because he was not Jewish to play Tevye. Um And it was the first time I had seen Fiddler. Like, I think I'd seen clips of the film. But, like, when I I saw it, when I was working for 101, I was like, this is so powerful. This is so great. He's such a good actor. I don't understand the objection. Like, like I I feel the depth in the soul. And I remember my friend Josh being like, yeah, it's just just not the same. And I was like, can you explain it to me? And he's like, I really can't. Like, if they get a Jewish actor in there, you'll see why. And then of all actors, they got Harvey Firestein to come in to replace Alfred Molina. 
who like could not I mean just could not be more different and that's not a, 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 a talent approximation it's just oil and water in terms of acting style but seeing Harvey play straight by the way and he did but I mean it's still Harvey Firestein you're still getting that voice but within five minutes I'm like oh there it is and it's, it's this idea you hinted at this earlier just this idea of like in the face of extreme hardship and depression and everything else it's finding the humor it's finding the the throwaway lines and Alfred Molina played it all I mean he, he's an actor of tremendous talent and he brought all this gravitas but he I mean he and he could deliver a joke but Harvey Firestein in five minutes would like with with one line reading I'm like oh there it is and like like if you're not if that is not your culture if it's not what you're brought up in it's just there there's an ineffable essence and I remember one of the reviews called that that production of Fiddler like oh my coach is a little McShtetl because like they had so they had so uh stylized it that um most of the people who are Fiddler's core audience was like, this is not Fiddler. Even if it's the same lines, it's just, it's not. Like, what is this? It's way too watered down. And keep in mind, they didn't change the script, right? But just the production was so white bread that um, it was not a success. Um, I mean, it ran for a while because it's Fiddler, but um, it just, it was, I, I think maybe it made its money back, but it is one of the forgotten versions of that show um, over time. Uh, and yeah it's it's a it's a um it's a tough show to pull off i don't know if the six i i enjoyed the sixth graders version of it um it would we <laughs> you'll, let's wrap it up with this uh uh so because it's such a long show and tevya is such an intense part it was actually split in two i maybe i've told you this before taylor but like someone we don't like at all Oh, I've played him in I've the seen, first act. I've seen the tape. I have seen the tape. Of, You've seen the tape. I've seen the tape. <laughs> and then someone who was who was neutral but much better, much more likable, played in the second act, uh, and uh, which is still pretty funny. Um, it was very hard to make the normal boy look like the boy we did not <laughs> like at all because he's uh, uniquely annoying to just. It's like Voldemort. We shall not say his around. name. But, yes, um, we shall. We shan't name the names because he probably has something that scrubs the internet looking for uh, people to sue. Um, okay, Fiddler, fantastic show. Sit down, watch it. Watch the movie. The movie's great. It is great. Uh, long as hell. Uh, it's great. Um, yeah, great music. Uh, uh, easy. Wow. There's there's Savage Beast. This music is great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, look, we can't be Savage Beast and not get real fucking elitist. So now we're going to talk about chess. We're we're going to talk about chess, uh, and let's let's kick it off with. We're going to talk about Queen's Queen's Gambit, the musical. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. <laughs> let's kick it off with One Night in Bangkok. Sitting in the city, don't know what the city is getting. The creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything but Yule Brinner. Time flies, doesn't seem a minute since the Tyrolean Spa had the chess bars in it. All change, don't you know that when you play at this level, there's no ordinary venue. It's Iceland, or the Philippines, or Hastings, or Bye. 
actually going to start off. I, I, there was like I was listening to this in on YouTube, and for some reason, the one night in Bangkok of all the videos, only this one was a weird '80s music video. Yeah, there is a weird <laughs> '80s music video of one night in Bangkok. It's very it's true. So strange. <laughs> it's like a production budget of like five hundred dollars. Yes. So, <laughs> all right. So, I I have a lifelong problem of I am a sucker for something that like wasn't a hit but it looks cool maybe it was just misunderstood and as a result i have i have it's less so with books because the bad book i just give up on it um but i have seen so many bad movies because i saw the stuntman once because I, I random bought the stuntman and it's one of the best movies i've ever seen in my life and as a result like i'm like oh it just must be misunderstood no a lot of movies suck um and th this is my stuntman because unlike the past shows we've talked about which have either had either critical or commercial or both acclaim um I, I think comet ultimately did not make money but i mean it's still it's it's beloved um so my the version of chess that we just heard that is my version uh my version is the concept album and the reason why that's critical is that there has never been a successful stage version of chess to date it simply does not exist there have been concert versions there was a broadway version we'll talk about that in a minute um but it is by Tim Rice's own admission, and I, I'm not just making that up, it's literally in the, uh, there are two versions of the script. There is the Broadway version, it's horrible, but that came after the London version. And the London version, so I, I oh, also the elephant in the room, uh, this is Tim Rice pairing with the ABBA boys. Uh, yes, Mamma Mia themselves, uh, Bjorn and, and Evalis and whatever, um, creating a, a, uh, I don't even want to say well, what what music would you call ABBA? I know it's pop. Is it disco? Like, what would we call ABBA? Uh, it's it's uh, it's escaping me. It is it's pop. It's disco pop. Okay, there's a word for it. It's not new wave, right? That's um, that's something different. Or... No, 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 no. Okay, they're just they're they're like Swedish pop, Scandinavian pop. Right. But they had they're basically their own genre of music. Right. So when when they took their clout, right? Like because this was either they were right at the top of their wave or they were on their way down, but they were still certified hit makers. And they paired up with Tim Rice to do to do a show about uh Russian American relations somewhat based on the real life drama of these chess championships that they did happen in the 80s and it was this idea of like oh it's a fun game but like really no our side needs to win um you know gary kasparov and and uh, bobby fisher this whole drama but to take that and to turn it into a uh disco pop musical but that also some numbers were traditional music numbers it is so weird and tim rice by his own admission in the if you get the uh london script which does not have a credited book writer it's just Music by, by Benny and Bjorn, and lyrics by Tim Rice, based on idea by Tim Rice. There is no credited book writer, but I'm flipping through it right now. There's dialogue. There's definitely dialogue. And he he says, I, uh, Joe, I sent this to you earlier, uh, that basically uh, they never cracked it. They never figured it out. And so they said, whatever sequence of songs and scenes you choose, we wish you well and thank you for your interest. When in doubt, refer back to the original album. First thoughts are often the best, and in many respects, I wish we had never changed a note of it. Now, 
Joe, you and I worked at Samuel French, and uh, it is a big no-no just to be like, yes. yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna do the show in a different order. Like you, you're cool with that. Oh like, yeah, they, very bit. Yes, they, they are not cool with it. They have never been cool with it. Let's, the only let, way they let's, let's explain. <laughs> hold on, yeah, let's yeah. explain what it means to work at Samuel French. Uh, yes, like let's, one, let's. the one-minute summary <laughs> of working at a uh, one of the uh, premier theatrical licensing agencies. So my in the world. <laughs> I mean, this was my first job after my internship, and it's like, wow, Samuel French, like that's you know they they have Arthur Miller's contract, they they have Greece, like you know they 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 you know represent the playwrights that I give a shit about, half the playwrights that I give a shit about, and I show up and it it's like this throwback. Um, that's not even a fair enough word. It's a shithole. It's, it's a shithole. <laughs> it was a total. Here's the thing. It was a total shithole, but. I went to my desk and like there was a typewriter and this was what 2005 and I started laughing and they're like okay now write some letters and I was like oh oh you're you're not uh, oh no <laughs> like oh no um and I had like a tell um a wasn't Linux what is it what was the database we had to use the database and it was like these old teletype computers but it didn't run Windows right it ran fuck what was it you know what I'm talking about uh dos it wasn't it was it, or like it wasn't even that because it was just a database you, yes. you couldn't you couldn't get you're right it was just an right i don't i can't even remember the name of that operating system is it's it was like, so old um yes and the email address for the entire fucking company again 2005 right like like we are you it's okay to have an aol address if you're a person like that, that wasn't shamed at that point gmail was just starting outlook didn't really exist but the email address for the entire company was Samuel French at earthlink.net. And mm. I remember I had a friend who worked at William Morris and she was like, do I still have to fax you this about anything? Like, oh, permission or like this playwright has a question. I was like, yes, you, you still have to fax us. And the, the thinking was Charles Van Nostren, he's pro if he's not dead, may he be dead. Uh, he, it was a family owned business and he was the president. He was the majority shareholder at the time. And his literal thought was, every dollar I don't spend, I get to keep 60 cents of. So I'm not spending any dollars on anything. Yep. And so this was, the, the, and, and the, the end result of this is that we like, I sp you spent like a couple of years there. I think I spent like about eight months yeah. in this like, this den of, this like rotting den of miscreants, just a fire hazard of like paper, like and holes like, in the ceiling, actual spreadsheets, yes. like yes. piled to the ceiling, like, you know, and, and just like with the, the, if you're thinking about like a collection of actual like failed actors and theater people, like this is where you would meet them. Yeah, um, just a true good people. Many of them quite noble in spirit, right. but broken in body. Uh, just um, just this island of misfit toys. And also remember, this was pre uh, Affordable Care Act. So the one thing Samuel French had going for it was the health care plan was good, and so, and yes. so you had, including our boss, who thankfully after. Obamacare was passed, was able to go to a different company, but you had good people trapped there because they had developed health conditions that the insurance would pay for. If they went to work someplace else, they wouldn't. And so you were just doomed. It's like, oh, you could die or you could die here. And that, that, was, that was our experience at Samuel French. Obviously we got out, but... Um, we did. Anyway, uh, so, uh, so, so to, to break it back to chess, but one of the things I, I remember, and Joe had to deal with this too, was that 
man, playwrights are really uh, touchy. If you try to like cut a song or cut a role or change it, they do not like yes. that at all. Like at like they will shut you down. I'm not even joking. Um, yeah, you need permission for any like change. Really, for most of them, like literally any change at all, like right. a word. You technically need yeah, permission. I, I, uh, oh, do you remember Ali? We were there for Aline, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So she famously told this story, usually when drunk. Um, she was my old boss. Uh, and then she died. Um, but she would tell this story about how uh, for Barefoot in the Park, I think it was Barefoot in the Park, Neil Simon play, uh, that one production hired someone to play the UPS guy who has like three lines. And then they cut him. They're like, look, we'll, we'll pay you for the first week. But like, we're just, we're not doing the part. He called Samuel French to be like, hey, uh, they just fired me, which means they're not using this part in the play. And uh, they shut it down. It, it was like not a small production of Barefoot in the Park. They, they just fucking sent a cease and desist order and that was it. Done. Um, so, and sorry, long story long. So for the makers of chess, at least for the London version, to say, yeah, um, you know, we never quite got there. So uh, good luck. And whatever you want to do is fine by us. Um unprecedented and what so the only perfect version of this show to me exists in my head because as as i sent to joe um poor joe he did not realize what version we were doing he accidentally listened to the the broadway version which is just horrendous um there's a reason it lasted like 20 performances and then close um but it was it was like i was like i i would describe it as like replacement level musical i was like okay Right, singing. right. Um, and I mean, and, and to be, I cannot be unbiased about this show because not only do I love it, but like I have, I've always wanted to see what I see in my head to the point where like uh, when I was interning at a radio station for like three weeks, I asked permission to use their equipment to record the CDs in a certain way onto a tape. That is the version that I think makes sense in my head, which is adorably analog because now you just fucking make a playlist or you just edit it in your thing but like that was not a thing back in the year 2000 so i had like this prized two tapes of chess that was like no if you do it this way it works <laughs> um but it, it is it is fascinating to me that uh, you know the two guys i mean tim rice I, sometimes he's brilliant sometimes he's terrible but he kind of follows wherever the music wherever the wherever the music music takes him he will write lyrics that fit i mean that's how you go from lion king to joseph to Evita, like, how does that work? Because you're Tim Rice and you do what you're told. Uh, brilliantly, but you do what you're told. So this is, this to me, this I know it's an idea from Tim Rice, but like the ABBA guys, I think, were driving the engine on this. And it is such a cynical show. Like, there's a romance in it, but it is all at the service of this idea that these two factions, Russia and the U.S., and even though, like, you're supposed to take the U.S.'s side, like, there's no heroes here. No one wins in this story at all. Um it's a it's an intense story i mean like intense in that like i just even reading the wikipedia summary i was like what is happening here this is uh no i wasn't confused but i was like they made a story out of like chess betrayal yeah so uh, uh, here's one where like no you do need the background so it it, the idea is that there's a there's the the best champion in the world's an american he's a giant asshole the up-and-comer is a russian who is deeply miserable and like estranged from his wife and both sides understand they don't know each other but they hate each other uh the the two chess champions and the idea is that like they're very aware of the stakes even though they both have their own psychosis and the second both chess players have a second it's like their their sparring partner even though it's chess um 
and the the second for the American is this woman who is also a fantastic chess player, but because she's a woman, no one takes her seriously because it's the 80s. It could also be now. But the idea is that through a chance meeting, she and the Russian fall in love. And so the Russian, who also has his own reasons, defects. The Russian beats the American at chess, but then defects to America at the end of Act 1. And Act 2 is the... You would think it's the rematch, but One Night in Bangkok, which we just listened to, which is an absolute ABBA banger while also relating critical exposition, is the American being like, yeah, I, I lost, so I'm not in this time. I'm just here to fuck with them. And so Act 2 is like the rematch, but it's the Russian as the new American hero fighting a new Russian, but then Russia sends his ex-wife to be like, hey man, you left me behind for like this woman? Fuck you. And the final song called Endgame, which, which, which originally I was going to pick, but it's way too long. It's uh, the Russian saying, like, who's just completely outmatched and outnumbered. I won't get into it, but, like, a lot of shit goes down to try to get him to defect back to Russia. And there's a lot on the line. I know it sounds really, like, what what are you talking about? But it's there. It's there if you're looking for it. Um, and he has the... It's the kind of thing that you can only do in a musical. Yeah. Let's yeah. be real. Yes, yes. Uh, returning to that theme. Yes. Um, but he has this amazing cynical song where like, at first he's like, I don't, everyone thinks I don't know what to do, like, but I finally realized my purpose. And then the music goes from inspirational to like really synthy dark where he talks about like, I get it now. My job is to be good at chess and fuck everyone else. Like, this is my purpose. I finally figured it out. And then his ex-wife, who by the way is not in act one, she just shows up in act two. It's a very, it's a fractured show. But she has this amazing thing where she just like rips into his toxic masculine bullshit, which is for 1980s is like pretty ahead of the curve. And it's like, it's no wonder this was not a hit. Um, but just, so it's this just amazing like dark tango between these two tortured people who are both like, they're both incredibly selfish and they're both right and they're both wrong. And it's this amazing parallel with what's actually going on with the, with the countries. And it just all comes together in this musical cacophony and like my to me like my god it's brilliant even though like of course this didn't play on broadway and of course like no one's here's the irony right like in this era now of hbo max disney plus they're all looking for content i can easily see a two-part miniseries if you get someone with a really strong visual eye that i think you could make a fucking badass version of this because i don't know if it could ever actually work on stage um maybe as an opera maybe but it is so cerebral, and even though it's ABBA, it's so cerebral and it's so dark. But in like not, not a, uh, it, it's all dark emotions. There's no blood. No one gets killed. You know, thank God. Yeah. There, there's no sex crimes, thank God. But like, like there, there's it, there's hints of stuff that's happened in the past, but like nothing is vividly depicted. It's literally like a power struggle seen through chess, and yet it is so cynical. And even though there is a genuine romance, like it's just doomed from the start. Like it's just not. <laughs> they're just not going to make it. Um, and I think you could do an amazing miniseries version of this, but it would have to be in two parts. A movie would be too long. And so if anyone gave enough of a shit about this, which they don't, um, other than like serious musical theater nerds, no one cares. No one even knows what chess is. Um, but I think you could get a version of it that would be amazing. And until then, it'll just live on uh, in my mind. Um, but what did you think? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I can't. Uh, I... <laughs> I think that this, well, I guess my my experience with chess, I mean, I knew what it was, but I'd never really been inspired to listen to it. Uh, and having listened to it now, it was just more of, an, uh, I, found, I found it interesting. 
Uh, I need to see it. I kind of want to sit down and like see the, uh, if one can see the good version in some way. I it, at some so time. the closest uh, the closest you will get. There is a concert version with really good, like um, I think Josh Groban and Adina Menzel. I don't know if you can listen to it. I don't know if it was taped. I I think it was. Um, I just mean if someone were to like you know actually do it right. <laughs> stage it again yeah I, I would i need i would be very interested in seeing it then and here, because it's it's as you as the summary as you said it's 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 a very interesting story and of course uh i i mean i love abba like i was i was raised as to to res- love and respect abba by my mother um and uh <laughs> it um you know they uh their music their music's great and you know them plus tim rice is a nice combo um and obviously uh you know uh who doesn't love abba music you know right <laughs> abba musical. so what the fuck is that so let, let's what the let's, fuck is that musical called mamma mia the movie and then there's Mom- thank you and then thank there's you. mamma mia here we go again which actually is is yes. is beat for beat ripped off of godfather part two and it's actually kind of brilliant because it's like if you're gonna rip it off, if you're gonna rip off something for a sequel, it's not a bad one to rip off. Where it's like half of it's the past, half of it's the future. Like we cross cut it, it's fine. We, we got Cher, we got Andy Garcia, it's great. <laughs> she sings Fernando, and then you find out his Andy Garcia's character throughout the whole movie. You're like, he's great, but like, why is he here? And you find out his name is actually Fernando, and she sings Fernando to him. And it's, I mean, if you're high or drunk, it's amazing. Um, I do I do want to bring it home with chess for two things. One of the reasons that I don't think you'll ever, unless you go to London, I don't, at least in my days at Samuel French, I was told the reason that there will never be a good version of chess is that because this ass, mm-hmm. this asshole Richard Nelson wrote the book for the American version, and he has the, at least while he was alive, maybe he's dead now, I don't know. But he had the exclusive rights that like, if you were doing chess in America, you had to do the script he wrote with their music. And, and, and it's it's just terrible. And no, so we would get calls every now and again. Someone would be like, hey, is the London version available? And it's like, no, no, it's not. Um, and it's a real bummer, man. However, I will, uh, I have a random piece of trivia for you that, uh, Ooh. yes. So in, I love it. in the Broadway version, uh, uh-huh. playing the role of uh, the Russian second, the Molokov, he's the, the one with the very heavy accent in the show. Uh, is an actor who we both love, and I will give you uh, three clues, okay? So one, uh, this isn't even a clue. He's, he's an old white man, okay? One, he's dead. Uh, two, he is not Leslie Nielsen. And three, he played a character so iconic to both of us and in our group that just his performance as this character means he is immortal to us. And he was in the original Broadway version. Can you guess who he is? He's a white guy. Wait, so he, so the, okay, so this guy was in chess, and he is. So he was. A, he's an old white, old old white dude who has passed on, not Leslie Nielsen, because that seems like the obvious choice of an old white man that we both beloved, and his portrayal of a character, um, is so iconic to our group that like, he lived. He is immortal, and to the fact that like we have used the character he has played many times in many situations. Uh. Would it be, um, uh, would it be Harry Gauze? Yes, yes. Fucking okay. Fucking Harry Gauze is was in the original Broadway production <laughs> of Chess, and 
Captain Murphy. Captain Murphy. And uh, if so, if that is the only reason I can think of ever to listen to the original Broadway version, if you want to see Harry, Ga- hear Harry Gaz in a questionable Russian accent singing some songs. Well, there he is, nice. my friend. He he, that's like he definitely. Um, I feel like he's like number one in like iconic characters that we've repeatedly turned to. Yes. <laughs> um, I swear I saw that freaking well, shopper. Okay. <laughs> All right, we're, that's some good trivia. We're, okay, we're, we, gotta, we are ninety we minutes wrap. in. We got to all right. Let's bring it home, baby. Damn we Yankees! Wrap this the fuck up. Damn Yankees! Um, damn Yankees! Uh, I think we got to play. We didn't even talk about what song. Let's let's listen to uh, the game. They thought they thought about, about the, game, the game. The, the game. game. Yeah, we're just listening to that. We're listening to that. I guess. Benny says if we're gonna succeed in the big league, we gotta pay attention to all them strict rules. Well, he's right. No drinking, no women, no late hours, no women. We gotta keep our minds on the game. We've gotta think about the game. The game, the game, we've gotta think about the game. The game, the game, booze and broads may be great. Though they're great, they'll have to waste while we think about the game. There was this waitress back in Kansas City, built for comfort, dumb but pretty. Man, her perfume sure did smell sweet. Got her up to my hotel suite. She kills a pint of gin, more or less. The lights are low, and she slips off her dress. I thought about the game. The game, the game. Oh, yes, I thought about the game. The game, the game. Though I got the lady high, I just left her high and dry, cause I thought about the game. He thought about the game. There was this Pullman car that I got lost in on the sleeper out of Boston. So, uh, you know, this show, this show's a little, <laughs> it's a little rapey, this show. It's... I'm not gonna lie. The, yeah, <laughs> it, whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. Um, you know, and uh, it's of a certain time and place. But uh, looking back, it is. I, I know why my mom wanted to do it. It's a fun show. She has you know fond memories of it, and like she knew she could blackmail you and me and all of our other friends into being in it to fill out all the baseball players. Uh, but looking back, like maybe not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't I, I mean like I was in this show so like I'm trying to remember so the devil gets gives shoeless Joe all right no no all right, the power. all right I got it I got it um so give me the plot in one minute all right a a, a middle-aged old man uh who loves his Yankees and they suck and he's like I would sell my soul if we could get a long ball hitter and the devil's like okay cool and they literally negotiate a contract where he will be young and he he will have that power um but if he plays the whole season, he loses his soul. But because I guess they need a plot, the devil's like, but if you uh, say you want it, if you say you're out before the last game at nine o'clock, fine, you go back to your old life. But um, otherwise, like you're mine. And then he, uh, he, so he goes to, no, I'm sorry, right? He, we hate the Yankees. He plays for the Senators. It's a fictional team. He, he plays for the Washington Senators, and he goes... Oh, they used to exist. They, right, sorry, they used to exist. So he goes, and he's Shoeless Joe, and he's a huge... Like, he revitalizes the team, and he's winning, and he's winning. 
And then the devil sends Lola, who is one of his, like, someone who sold their... Is she a demon or did she sell her soul and she just works for the devil? Unclear. I think she just works for the devil. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And so she goes to seduce Joe so that he'll stay and be a young, you know, virile baseball player and sleep with all the ladies. Again, pretty rapey. But instead he... (laughs) Instead, he uh, moves back into his old wife's house as, like, a uh, just a renter and kind of gaslights her because uh, he wants to go back home, but he also wants to be a... It's one of these shows where it's like, the more you think about it, the worse it is, so let's just enjoy the music, right? Because, like, the songs are a lot of fun, and, you know, the other baseball songs... We were the baseball team. We were the baseball <laughs> team. We, we had a lot of fun. We did. Um, and it also, to bring it even more full circle, so... This is maybe one of the only times that the Bob Carr production was great because it was the tour with Jerry Lewis, right? And Jerry Lewis, it was stunt casting, but it was actually brilliant having him play because he could sing, right? Or he could sing well enough. And he played the devil. And it's like, actually, that's taking a weakness and making it a strength because the character is super obnoxious and the character is a trickster. So, like, this is kind of a match made in heaven. What we didn't realize until my mom had to, like, buy the cast recording from that tour and piece it together and then later on I, I shit you not i ended up accident like accident of fate i worked i spent a summer working for a producer who produced that tour of damn yankees and he's like oh yeah like the original book is terrible we had to get permission to rewrite it and like fix things because it makes no sense but then they but then they, so they go to all this work to produce a superior version of that show which i think one it, it was either up for tony's or it won tony's i mean it was, it was a big hit but you can't get permission to do that that version does not exist. Mm. So my mom had to repurpose it and write. She even wrote one scene. You know, sorry, whatever production company we licensed this from. And yeah, I remember that. I, yes, I kind of remember the the like that being inserted into the script. Right, like she literally was like writing down stuff from the CD, and then at one point we just kind of had to figure out a scene transition. Uh, our our then friend Ben Brandy Booth was like the reporter, like basically just narrating how we're going to get to the finale. Um, but it was because we had seen the superior version and then she got the old script and she was like, oh no, like this, parts of this are real bad and maybe not a, even like less appropriate for children than the version we had. Because, um, yeah, cool. also originally the, so one of the great songs is Two Lost Souls and originally it's Lola and Joe and it doesn't make any sense for them to be singing that song, like Two Lost Souls on the Highway of Life, but at least we got each other because it's like, yeah, he just recently entered into this and you've been doing this for a long time. So, in the Jerry Lewis version, it becomes this really nice song between the devil and Lola, which is the version we did. And we did that song because it makes more sense for the devil and the devil seducer to be like, man, we've been doing this a long time. Hey, at least we're buds, right? Like that makes sense versus the guy who sold his soul and now regrets it singing to his seductress because the seduction didn't work that they're pals now. Like what? Exactly. What? What? Okay. Yeah. What? Yeah. And I don't know. That's, that's, yeah, there's, this is like a recurring thing in musicals where I don't know. I think the editing process is about sometimes more about like the song than it is. Does this make sense? Yeah. I don't know. I, I can't. Sometimes I think I think there's a lot of times when like we have to write a song for this character, and I know there's like a lot of specific examples where like some actor demanded a song, right? But um, you know, they uh, where it's or they're like, oh, I thought of this really good song for this scene, but it doesn't really make sense with the plot. Eh, we'll just squish it in there. 
you know, and I think that's where like sort of the magic of musical works against it. We're like, people will figure it out. Right. Like, and it's, it's just interesting. I, I would say of all this shows, uh, like anything else, it has creative problems <laughs> like any other genre. I, I would say out of all the six shows we've discussed, this is the one. And obviously we have a soft spot for it. We were in it and it's got some good songs. But this is the one that I think is most susceptible to Paul's criticism, because I would say, like, to me, Comet is a perfect show. And uh, once you took a movie and you turn it into this brilliant show, it's all organic. Um, Little Shop, I think, is a perfect musical. And they had to make changes to make the movie make sense, because otherwise it didn't make sense, right? But at least, like, those changes, it's like, oh, it's in a different medium, whatever. And I think Fiddler, like, that's a show, actually, if you update it, you're in danger, right? Because the power is, first of all, it's a period piece anyway. But, like, the more you update it, the more it's going to lose the immediacy of, like, no, like, this was... The things in Fiddler are always true, right? Like, the pogroms always happened. Tradition is always true. You know, the, the thi- if I were a rich man, that hasn't changed, right? Like, that that's still a universal yes. thing. Whereas Dan Yankee's like, mm-hmm. like, if you can't update it... And they did, right? But then the authors are like, yeah, we'll just pretend that update never happened. There's a reason some of these shows, like, are should be consigned to the dustbin of history. If, like, because... it. it Paul's criticisms that he would apply to every musical, but like they most hit home here. And this is a show we, you and I like, but it's like, oh yeah. And like, and then this happens. And like, just cause they thought it would be fun. Like what is like, like the emotional through lines, not quite there. Or if it is, it's like horrifically dated and like not super great. Um, and that is, that is the problem with some of these older, I mean, new shows have this issue too, but, but yes. then they just don't succeed. Right. They just don't go anywhere. But these older shows where it's just like, yeah, we, we got to jump through a lot of hoops for this to not be super awkward and terrible. Well, absolutely. And there's a lot of these shows that I think because of our parents' time and like, uh, it's the, you know, Paul and I have discussed this like history with rock and roll a little bit too, where um, because of like what was popular when the genre first became popular is sort of like set the tone. There's a lot of stuff from like the, the, those for the first era that remains sometimes for a very good reason, you know, very, um, you know, at the at, at top of mind, but sometimes just because it's like, okay, everyone loved Steely Dan, like within, you know, 15 years of people figuring out what rock and roll is. So now we still have to like listen to Steely Dan. Right. Um, right. I guess Steely Dan's okay. There's a worse bands I could think of, but like with musicals, it's like, yeah, I guess damn Yankees was from like a golden age of musicals and like everybody did it, it forced their kids to do it growing right. up or like, I don't, right. you know, even though it's a little bit of weird for little kids, but and now it's like this, we need to let some of these go. Like we just yeah. need to, you know, set a new standard. It's like Christmas songs, you know, yeah. where it's like, we need some new standards well, well, here. And, and let's, like, but I, I think that, no, that's a perfect example of it. Right. Because like we're singing these old, old Christmas standards. Cause it's what our parents did. But a lot of the stuff we sing about, it's like, do we do that anymore? And, and this is, yes, this, yes. this gets to the heart of damn Yankees, right? Like base baseball still exists, but, our relationship to baseball has evolved so much. The game has evolved. Even like I know some of the rules are still the same, but like it's just it's just not the same. And and this idea of like that everyone can relate to their husband just watches the game six months out of the year and just complains about it all the time. Like some of those people exist, but it's much more niche than it was. Yeah. And yeah. And um. And just yeah. And, and this is where I, the heart I'm getting towards like. First of all, Fiddler is a period piece, and Little Shop is like this fantastical horror story. But, but, 
we can relate to being down on your luck and being like, I'm never going to get anywhere and I'm stuck here forever. And you, and f especially for, uh, for, for the Jewish cult people, but also on top of that, just anyone who watches Fiddler can be like, you know, tradition and community. And also like this really fucking happened and you need to know about it. Also, the songs are really good. Um, chess is in another category because it's so abstract anyway that like you were already asking only certain people to sign off for it and it wasn't a hit right so the idea is that maybe someone will crack that eventually and find that version of it but with damn yankees it's like i'm sure there's a really good musical that could be written about the modern sports fan but it's not going to be a big crowd pleaser because guess what the modern sports fan who is like that into it um they're deeply troubled people you know and in order, in, in order to do that, no, I'm serious. To do that honestly, right? Like, like, look, you are a huge basketball fan, but basketball does yeah. not control your life. It's not like if the Magic are on, throw my kid to the side. Like, this is all that I'm yes, doing. Yes, no, yeah, that's yep, yep, true. And the kind of, and I'll, I mean, look, that's also a product of the fact that we can DVR things. Even that term is now dated, right? You can get anything you want on demand, and you can save it. You can do it, whatever. You can get the highlights. You can catch it on your phone. So this idea that like. This is my only way to experience the game unless I read about it tomorrow. So guess what? That's all that I'm doing. And this is my life. And that used to be yeah. just a thing that guys did. And uh, I mean, some women, but mainly yes. guys. And now it's like the kind of person that does that. It's like, uh, did you ever see that Patton Oswalt movie, Big Fan? It came out like 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I, I did not. Um, it, I mean, it's worth, worth the rent, worth the Google. But part of the reason it didn't do super great, even though it got great reviews, is that an honest look at someone who calls into the sports fan it's a, he's a giants fan he's a football fan but same idea right someone who's like their entire life is calling into a radio show and be like oh they won i'm happy oh they lost i'm sad and it's an honest appraisal of that uh, would be really sad and troubling and so an updated version of damn yankees about a guy who is so the only thing in his life that matters is his baseball team to the point that he will sell his soul and leave his wife to go play for this team and then he kind of has second thoughts and maybe he can have both like the only way yeah. <laughs> like even, as i'm saying it out loud i'm like ah oh, like if this wasn't a beloved classic why would i be watching this and if that's the answer then maybe you just put some of those hits on a um on a cruise ship medley and you, you call it a day you know yes you can rewrite that's that's true you could rewrite you could write a different show that like gets this point across this time like there's nothing wrong with like re like just like skipping the way this you know a story of obsession was told in right. 19 what you know was this the 60s yeah yeah uh, i think so yeah yeah you know and and re and just doing something new now and there is no again we can't stick around and like keep mounting bad musicals just because there's like two classic songs in them because that is a real fucking drag I, I mean, I mean, um, I mean, they, they can and they will, but I agree with you. <laughs> oh, they will, but we should. Well, and um, and also uh, anyway. <laughs> yes. All right. So uh, we're going to close with one more Shelly story just because um, she's it's it's, yeah. it's weird. Like I thought like, oh, there'll be one story. It's like, no, like except for chess, which not so much, but like almost all of these she factors in. Um, so <laughs> the only time my mom ever got called in to the principal's office at my preschool uh, which was a thing, I guess, back in California in the 80s. Right, right, wait for it. They were like, we, we need to come in about your son's behavior. And she's like, oh my God, like, what What are you talking about? In preschool? Yeah, wait for it. So she <laughs> so she goes in and they're like, well, look, and she's like, he's like, is, is he hitting people? Is he like, is he, no, well, no, no. And it's like, well, is he 
like not listening and they're like no 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 ma'am he he's he's polite he does this whatever but we just we just need to talk about his his language his swearing and she's like what are you talking about and it's like well he just he just keeps singing this song about about these damn yankees and like we just won't laugh with this kind of language and <laughs> and she just lo- i mean this is her story so i wasn't there but she just loses it and they're like we don't think this is funny and she's like let me tell you about classic musical theater because what had been happening is uh she was directing a musical review that was going on a cruise ship and so she would pick me up from preschool and bring me to rehearsal and I would just sit there and I would just listen to these songs and the opening of Damn Yankees is quite catchy because it's like those damn Yankees why can't we beat them and so I'm a kid I'm just repeating whatever and so she puts me in the car and I knew like I was in trouble but I didn't really know why and I was like am I in trouble she's like no we're getting ice cream like you're fine don't worry about it kid that's awesome (laughs) that rules so I, I'm sure she will, she, she's very excited to listen to this. I'm sure she's going to be sad of our reappraisal of Damn Yankees, which, Mom, it, it ain't your fault. You did everything possible to make it the best possible Trinity production of Damn Yankees. It's just that show, that show has some good songs, but it's probably time to retire it. It just, it, I don't think it stands the test of time. And the best part of that is uh, that preschool story is later you would appear in a Shelley directed production where during a dress rehearsal, you showed up on stage wearing nothing but your heart boxer shorts because you didn't get, I, you didn't do the costume change fast enough. I, I had a choice of like, we can either, we can either uh, stop the show or I can just go on stage in my boxers and the show must go on. And, uh, you know, I, I made my mom proud. I just went out there and I, I just sold it. Yes. And the, all of you were like, what the, the looks on your faces? Like, we barely got through the scene. We, that we ha- holding it together during the seed resulted in like yeah one of the top ten times I've laughed the hardest afterwards. And then uh, wait, didn't we we kept it right? Like my mom's like, if you're comfortable, like I came out and did one line. I think I'm, we did. And then I, I came back and I came back I think, in uniform. But I want to say that you came out. I think we kept it. I think we kept it like you had you had like your undershirt and the boxers on, but you like came. I don't. Coming out I. Like that maybe not here's the thing if it's an under you know i'm sorry you're right i I did have an undershirt what they did was with the boxers they put like these big hearts on it so it's like the boxers were funny versus me just being in my boxers that's what it is yes and and i mean like i i was not a seville child uh i mean i'm not a seville adult but like i (laughs) i was i was i had major body issues and to my mom's credit she's like listen i'm not gonna make you do this but i'm telling you it's really really funny so like it's gonna be your choice and we'll work with you but like it's going to bring the house down. Like you, you will be the comedic star of this moment if we commit to it. And so I said, okay. And we did it. And I'm glad I did. Like I, look, I have, I have, I have regrets from high school. I have major issues from high school, but walking on those boxers is not one of them. It was just like the show must go on. So like, here we go. That's, <laughs> like, that's the way it should be. Uh, oh man. This... I regret, I regret my one, my one solo line in that show. I'm sure I sang it. I know I sang it like shit. Uh, you know, I did. Here's 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 the ugly here's the ugly truth about musical theater, um, and we can close with this because because my God, it's it's okay. an hour and fifty minutes. Let's. Um, Jesus. I know you. you yes. <laughs> maybe this is a two-parter show. I leave it up to you. Um, but a bunch of guys who are not professional actors, I want to be clear. But like a bunch of guys walking out there and like half-assing a number, being like, "Oh golly gee shucks," um, audiences will forgive that as long as you're having fun they will forgive that if a bunch of women come out and do that it's like why the fuck didn't you do this right and 
that ugly truth was revisited in law school. I shit you not. When I was doing um, the law review, like the fun, you know, we did songs, we did parodies, and we had a bunch of guys come out and do like a really half-assed kick line to a Starlight Express song that we like reappropriated. And the audience went nuts. They fucking loved it, even though like we sucked and we couldn't really sing it, but we're like, hey, we're kicking, mm-hmm. whatever. Whereas then a bunch of the women did this like really tight choreographed number to a parody of Womanizer that like they worked really hard on. But because they were trying to look professional, I want to be clear, like they did a really good job, but they were also law school students doing a dance number. But because they were women, everyone's like, yeah, I just wish it was a little better. Like they could have rehearsed it a little bit more. And like that was the most rehearsed thing they had done. They really worked on it. But a bunch of guys walking out be like, hey, what's up? Like, I don't know. I'm not very good. And just audiences will forgive that. And it's this like ingrained misogynist bullshit. So I'm sure we were not very good. And I'm sure we were still the best part of that show for most people. Despite the fact that we know that like the main three leads worked a lot harder yeah. than than uh, than we did. And that is just an ugly truth of musical theater. Yep. Yep. It is. Um, so on that happy I'm, note. I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to... just. I have to close one thing I was looking at my notes. One thing I forgot to say about the first show we did about, I was listening to 1812 this morning and there's, there's the line. This song, it starts with like in 19th century Russia, we write letters. Yes. And it's just, they're just singing about how they write letters. It's, I don't know. That really got me. Uh, here's the thing. You got that, that, to that's, it. that's a perfect example of like, that's hilarious. And then the song keeps going and then it'll rip your fucking heart out. Like it goes from hilarious yeah. to oh my god this is so sad and then they bring it back there's a point where it's like a love letter a love letter and she's like a letter from him the man that i love and then the guy's best friend is like yeah a letter i composed so just it's all there man it's funny it's tragic it goes back to funny and it's got a good beat musical theater (sighs) yeah all right uh well let's we're just gonna it's been two hours this is fun tune in next time paul will be back or he'll be dead uh we could only hope either way We'll sing a song about it. One night, Thanks, in, Taylor. One night in Arizona and the paws get rougher. <laughs> the tram was hotter than the sun. One night in sna- <laughs> the snapper in the I need to go to bed. Oh, my God. <laughs> snapper in the desert. All right. Good night. Good night. Okay. <laughs> you need to hit. Hit. Hit stop, right? <laughs> hit the Hit the stop. <laughs>